Hello and welcome to the Farm Reform Podcast live from Frontiers Health 2022. It is 522. Uh, conference has just wrapped and I am here with web editor Nicole Raleigh, uh, Frontiers Steering Committee member Tony Estrella. Estrella. Estrella, thank you. <laughs> and uh, Kristen Milburn, uh, Managing Director, Healthware Labs. Uh, I have brought these these folks together to kind of review what we saw, what we heard over the last two days, and um, bring that to all of you. So thanks for joining me, guys. Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, this podcast will, uh, unlike other podcasts, eventually be available also as a video on the Pharma Forum website. Uh, thanks to the the crew here at Frontiers. So who wants to go first, sharing kind of uh, big takeaways or impressions? What 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 did you? I guess hear the most. What What are you going to go home on the plane thinking about? Uh, I, I'll start just because I have the mic at my face um, <laughs> first. <laughs> um, I would say one thing I heard repeatedly, and including on two of the panels that I was moderating, is about you know we have some DTX that have been proven to be effective. You know there've been clinical studies, um, and they're you know shown to work for patients. The friction point to scaling seems to be the integration into the healthcare systems. Um, so it's not just about building a great product and then like trying to commercialize it. You need to do the work to integrate into the healthcare systems. And that means in Europe, particularly, that's country by country, region by region, depending on how that healthcare system is set up. And so I was also part of a, a session with the Digital Therapeutics Alliance, which is working um, we're partnering with them, Healthware, to help try to harmonize the, you know, the policy framework and help make that a little bit easier uh, from the re reimbursement side. How did the meeting go? It was interesting. We got some great feedback. Tony uh, provided some great use cases and, and things to consider. Um, I think it was, you know, it's an ongoing project and, you know, it's it's a lot to wrap your hands around because every country's in a different um time you know obviously diga was the first france is expected to be next belgium after that um but countries have also started to reimburse without even having a, a framework in place and so they're all at different stages um but we all know it's going to be very hard to scale throughout europe unless there's some kind of harmonization around the reimbursement pathway so that's separate from the issue I brought up first, which is the actual integration into the healthcare system. Because getting reimbursed is one thing, but then how do you roll your product out? How do you integrate within the clinical pathway uh, to get doctors to start to prescribe? Um, let's stay on this for a minute. Uh, this this idea of digital therapeutics, are, they're kind of here, they work, but now there's there's this whole second uh, phase uh, of of really how do we get adoption? How do we get scale? How do we get efficacy data? Um, and anyone else have thoughts on that based on what they heard? It's this question of having evidence and needing to get the evidence before you have the evidence. So having the practical, tangible results, as you were saying, Kristen, how do you get that without it being clinically used, clinically prescribed? How do you prove without the actual action of proving? Yeah, and adding to that, I think it was Jeff Dacus who said in in, uh, in, in the, one of the panels on day one that it's about the supply chain and that the current supply chain right now is geared towards uh, RX medicines. And it can't just assume that by adding a DTX 
into that supply chain, all of it's going to immediately be adopted. You have to go into each of the different stakeholders by looking at the individual the and their adoption curve, the clinicians and their adoption curve and insurers and how they will look at, at reimbursements to figure out how to bring this all together to create that ecosystem. And I would add to that, looking at it from the Asia lens, coming representing the Singapore and Asia contingent, that you also have to consider the out-of-pocket markets where insurance is not the default for how people should get their care. And so that was kind of one theme is change in supply. And then another thing that came up in this conversation around DTX was, is DTX an avenue to help try to create a, and narrow the divide in health equity? Um, because it's just a new path for being able to provide treatments that have a different curve of cost for R&D and therefore perhaps it's a way to be able to uh, reach more people and, make it, and bridge the access divide. Right, which is always, of course, tricky because, yes, it's more scalable. Yes, we should be able to reach more people, but also you need access to these resources. You need broadband. You need a device. Yeah. Um, and and let's make sure that these, as these modalities become mainstream, we don't leave people behind, right? Yeah, absolutely. That came up, and you brought it up, actually, in the when we were talking about the policy uh, frameworks and the fact that, you know, that's what some of the policymakers are saying, you know, well, you're going to create more of a digital divide. If you get an infrastructure in place throughout the country so that everyone has access to Wi-Fi and you make it more accessible from a country standpoint, you know, it's a push-pull, right? Super interesting thing I heard. Um, I think it, it, it was sort of came out of something on stage, but then sort of got developed in a discussion on the sideline was just this idea that, like, for a long time, digital therapeutics have looked to traditional therapeutics for their kind of benchmarks of legitimacy. So can we have an RCT like a traditional therapeutics? Can we be prescribed by a doctor like a traditional therapeutics? Now that they've kind of come into their own, some people are kind of questioning, you know, well, just because this is the way it's done with drugs, does that mean it's the best way? So, so outgrowing that kind of need to just prove that digital therapeutics are therapeutics and, and standing on their own two feet and saying, okay, but the RCT doesn't really make sense in the, so defined, you know, exactly the way it did for drugs for, for, digital therapeutics. So I, I thought that was another interesting take. Yeah, there's definitely people pushing for more real world evidence versus the true like RCT. But you know, I think that's what um, most feel comfortable with most, um, you know, government agencies are more comfortable with what they've always done, right? So it's, yeah, it's hard to get them to change that. Um, so so what else? Uh, I, Good, good discussion around digital therapeutics. I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on that, but yeah. we're trying to do an overview. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll add a new topic then that, you know, it, going to the nature of uh, partnerships and looking specifically at how large global multinationals are looking and, and creating the avenues to partner with smaller startups and what are the friction points and uh, that, that exist and how to overcome that. So multiple organizations talked about this. Uh, on my panel that where we talked about and explored about what's beyond video visits, we had Roche uh, and then two different startups, uh, Altibi and, uh, and Prava Health. And we had that discussion and then Pfizer had that in a session today with, through their innovation lab. And, and there was a few others who had this. And really it came down to three different points is that one, the velocity of how each organization operates, startup to global MNC is different. And so there has to be some translation to come together to make it to find a way to work together, um, being able to create common milestones. Well, first common problem statements and then common milestones and how to address those changes. And then the third is trying to figure out how to be able to create the operational framework to go beyond pilots 
and really get to a level of scale that's meaningful when you have to take into consideration that large organizations don't want to have 10,000 partners. They'd rather have three. But then when you start looking country by country, can that same partner also work to solve this in multiple multiple uh, health systems? So there's a lot of questions that came up and some good examples of how it's being done on a, on a limited basis today. But it is a roadmap that needs to be more filled out. That's exactly the one I was going to say too, Tony. And, and I noticed it came up again and again today, right? I was in the Pfizer panel. Before that, I was in the... Uh, the Vita panel, um, and that's a startup accelerator that Healthware is involved in, and they they were sort of talking about the same thing. You know, how do we make how do we make these partnerships between uh, startups and pharma? And then uh, later in the, in the day, um, well, your panel that you just hosted, Kristen, was about that, and we had Jacob Laporte from Novartis Biome. He was talking about a lot of the same things. Um, so really, seems very top of mind. And and I I had the insight while Jake was talking that you know the Novartis biome system is so similar to that Pfizer health hub system. They're all kind of coalescing on this same sort of similar pipelines to, to meet, find these startups, you know, yeah. create the right kind of partnerships with them. And then as you say, scale yeah. and, and scale can mean uh, geographical or it can mean scaling from one uh, condition or disease indication into another, which is a, a huge undertaking, but, um, but so necessary because that everyone's over the point solution thing, right? Absolutely, I heard that too. And I think it was interesting what Jacob was saying, and, and I know Pfizer works this way as well. They wanna create ways to make it easier, like the, to cut the bureaucracy, right? Within the organization, even for a startup to interact with a big pharma. And, and the way the pharma is analyzing the startup is likewise thinking long-term, like how can this move beyond just the US or you know, just whatever country it popped up in. So I think they're getting smarter on both sides. Um, and I'll add uh, one other example that came up was uh, pharma is one category of company, but uh, there's other uh, healthcare organizations that are looking to create ecosystem-driven change. So putting infrastructure together internally to work from the very start with an external group. So Roche talked about Mission Leapfrog in the Philippines and Thailand, where the core team is half internal to Roche and half external to Roche. And it includes people who used to work in the public health system and policymaking, and it includes external entrepreneurs. And so that group works together from the very start to define the solution. Um, and it may not always lead to an additional incremental sale of a Roche product, but that's okay. It's this concept of innovation within the system that exists. Sorry if I'm not waving my, micro, my microphone in the correct direction. Yes, and going back to the word of scalability, this is something certainly that sort of permeated the entire two days. I mean, I was listening earlier on mental health and how they're trying to scale up with regards to depression, the sort of uh, incremental studies into psychedelics. I know it's a little bit out there, but it's still one option for depression and potentially they were mentioning anorexia. So this scalability, this innovation within what exists, um, as you said with the Roche example in the Philippines, I was just speaking to Silvana Sinha earlier about Prava Health in Bangladesh, and it's just, can you tell me more about your thoughts on using what exists, say in the first world, et cetera, going beyond taking what exists and making better healthcare there? 
Yeah, I think her model is amazing in terms of what she's been able to put together. And to, for those of the audience who doesn't aren't familiar with Prava Health, they service 400,000 customers um, in Dhaka, in Bangladesh, uh, for primary, secondary, and tertiary care with a clinical lab. And that's a pretty substantive organization that they've built out. And, you know, I think that they are an interesting channel, going back to linking DTX back into this, to bring innovative therapies to a lower income group to bridge that access divide, but really keep a focus on quality. Um, so I think that uh, was very nice. And I think the other thing that companies like Aprava Health, uh, Altibi, and other groups that focus on developing markets, there's a few others that came up, is the first session where we talked about H's for humanity, that the H in healthcare is for humanity. I was really happy to, well, when I was honored that Roberto wanted to start the session with a, that focus on an element of humanity. And then to have it permeate through different sessions throughout the day and have people uh, for day one and day two and have people really say that it was a nice way to really ground us as to why we're all here in the healthcare industry was also wonderful to see. Yeah, I would I would second that. And you just I've been to a lot of these conferences and it's not a normal thing to have that much of space and focus dedicated to that kind of fundamental foundational idea that like while we're talking about this tech and it's the future and it's going to help people, let's also think about the people who don't even have access to the healthcare we have now and and how are we going to make sure they're included. So I, I think that's really, really good stuff. I want to talk about mental health a little bit. Nicole, you brought it up. Um, we heard a lot of interesting stuff about mental health. Um, and I want to frame this this way. Uh, it used to be that people were very, very resistant, um, very almost defensive about the idea that a therapeutic or an app um, would ever take the place of a of a therapist or a counselor or a doctor. Um, you know, it used to be like the first thing was here's what our app does, and the second one thing is don't worry, we're not going to give therapy just just through an app. But I feel like that's starting to change. I mean, there's still that asterisk, but you know, people are like, we don't have enough therapists, and the it's app's really good, so. That's it. It's there's just not enough therapists. I mean, I went through this in my own family. My daughter is a teenager, lived through COVID, you know, in high school. Not easy on them, you know. She had a lot of anxiety, and um, it, I looked, I asked friends, I, you know, and even with video, um, you know, tele um, health options, they're still like those therapists are back to back to back every day. There's not enough. So I do think there is um, starting to be an opening. We heard from Monique from uh, Wobot uh, sharing how their, um, how do they refer to the intelligent agent? The relational the agent. The relational agent and how people feel. And we hear, well, I've heard this before about how people become connected to robots. It, you know, there's this, you start to get close to this person that's always there for you. Mm -hmm. And we've seen, you know, research with uh, seniors and the SEAL where, they are, you know, they put them in uh, assisted living facilities and, you know, it helps lower their heart rate. Like these are things that are here, you know, and um, I think people are starting to get more open. And in some ways, it's the anonymity of interacting with a chatbot that, you know, some people are very resistant to going to therapy to begin with. So not having a, a person there, um, I think is maybe opening the door for people that still have that stigma associated with therapy. So good that that stigma is, you know, being washed away now with developments and that we can have these discussions about mental health and developments therein to assist 
what seems to be an ever-growing problem. And I'd, I'd add another point there is I, I also found it to be fascinating as to the levels of refinement as to what mental health means. Um, and now there's different uh, companies who are tackling different stages of what it can, of what mental health challenges exist from stress and anxiety through depression. So it's not viewed as one bucket anymore. There's a, as you can actually develop solutions which actually can be treated and hopefully end, but done in a way where it's very specific to that mental health need. I do think we're overdue for the conversation about uh, stewardship and responsibility. You know, for you know, I, I know health publications or, or mainstream tech publications like to do these gotcha stories where they go to one of these agents and they they type in "I want to kill myself" and then they they report what they say. But you know, but I think there there are you know, as this starts to become more commonplace, we are going to be facing more of these questions about what are the safeguards, what are the you know, what are the brakes on this train in case that the robot gets in over its head? And I think that's a fair question. And um, one thing I heard, and this wasn't related to mental health, but it seems like it could be one one avenue for that is um, Jalali from Altibi um, was talking about how they use AI for quality control. And they have an AI listening to the calls their doctors do with the patients and look just listening for anomalies. And then they have a human team that's, so that so they can catch if a doctor isn't doing what they should be or... And I wonder, you know, it seems like that there could be something like that AI could kind of monitor these conversations. But then at the same time, do you want your conversations with your therapist to be monitored? So it's really, it's tough. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think there is very good uses for machine learning and AI to help where monitoring is taking place. And as long as we're linking that monitoring to data privacy and creating the right standards and protection for cybersecurity around that, I guess the refinement of that question is, would you prefer having an AI listening or another human being listening who's not involved in the one-to-one -one discussion with your therapist? Most people would probably say, I'd rather have a machine listening because I want it to be private, but it remains to be seen. Uh, Nicole, did you have any other that we haven't talked about yet? While we're on the topic of AI, I just sort of wondered what you made, if you got to listen to it, to uh, Robert Conrad's discussion of AI and using semantics and in that fashion, connecting the dots in order to sort of develop their therapies. I thought that was fascinating. One of your questions, Jonah, for preparation for this discussion was, what did you find fascinating at Frontier South? And it is that sort of human linguistic element that is facilitating this. And I wonder with us discussing AI, listening to conversations in order to capture anomalies, this sort of bridge between all that, it's, yeah, it just seems endless. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I, I didn't catch that session, no, but right. I but I I get your point, and I think um, you know there's a lot that's going to be experimented with. You know, it's still early days, um, but I think there's a lot of promise, right? I think uh, there needs to be built-in safeguards, like you were talking about. Um, but you know, we're early days, and yeah, I think I didn't get to catch the session either. But one of the things around. Um, clinical research and new new research and development in healthcare is, and you could argue that uh, most of our healthcare history was around uh, research as opposed to care and support. Um, you know, really wasn't until we started having vaccines and then started having like physical facilities to, to help support everyone that we had more focus on care. And I think that is one area where it is good that healthcare moves a little slower in trying to not launch too quickly in areas like that where the technology has so many ways that it could go in uh, unexpected ways. Um, so 
there are times where we want healthcare to move faster. This is one where it's probably a middle speed would be good. Um, did any, did everybody get to do the VR demo? I have done it in the past and it really is amazing how immersive it is. And so if I, I demoed the VR for pain, um, solution and the, what it's treating is, is chronic lower back pain. And what happens is people, even when they're, you know, structurally or physically don't have the issue anymore, it's now something that they're scared of moving and part of the therapy the physical therapy is movement. And so it's kinesiophobia where you have a fear of movement. So when you put the, the VR headset on, you really, you're transported into this other place and it gives you these exercises to do through this, you know, different, um, like a cabin in the woods and, you know, near a waterfall. And so you're not thinking about what you're doing. It's asking you to do things within this um, world. And so it's really immersive, you know, and, and you really feel different when you take it off, you know? And so I, I am really excited about that. I mean, I, I have a cousin that died of an overdose on opioids and it tears me up that he could have had a solution like this to work through his back pain. Um, and you know, we lost him too soon. I mean, it's tragic. The, but so I do, I think there's a lot of promise for the pain specifically, um, use of VR. And then I think it's going to move to other therapeutic areas, um, where physical therapy could be, um, a good modality. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about that. Just to tie these two threads together a little bit. They also introduced Sammy, which is a, like a yeah. animated character in the yep. virtual uh, world who sort of acts as a not as a therapist, but, you know, as the voice of the, of the program and helps, you know, coax people to doing their guiding you their through therapy. Yeah. So he's real cute. I, I eager to see him in action. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that was a new thing they added. They learned that in the first trial that they needed to have some kind of a, someone walking you through it. So they created Sammy, which is a little avatar. It's kind of fun, but it kind of guides you through your exercises. So, yeah, it kind of gets almost like a, to chat but but it's live <laughs> a guiding light of hope indeed yeah we've got just a few minutes left um i'm sure we haven't scratched the surface but any any other anything else standing out burning for people they want to talk about well i'll say one thing i mean you know there was a lot of questions about the economic downturn and is that going to have an impact on you know innovation and you know from what i heard uh, from some of the vcs on the various panels is they don't think so but they do think um, companies, startups are going to need to be more judicious, stick to the basics, you know, double down, you know, and get through this. There may be more um, acquisitions of startups from, you know, larger corporates, potentially mergers. Um, but in general, that they felt even though there's less money that's flowing into, um, you know, we all saw the stats of, you know, what happened this year versus the frothy years of the p pandemic um, that, you know, it's not going away. It may slow down a little bit, but it's um, still, they, they don't think the bubble has burst. Yeah, and I, I heard a couple of other comments along those lines, which is uh, 
more mergers of startups so that you get a more robust platform coming together. And obviously there's complications in that in terms of how do you operationalize it, but maybe too many companies right now, not enough capital. Yes. Um, so that was one solution that was suggested by a, a, one of the investor panels. And then I think a second thing that didn't get, it didn't come up in this conference at us on a stage, but I heard it just walking around is that um, fundraising for funds is also a challenge. So the, they also have to do their own fundraising elements. So I think that one, especially for earlier funds, if you're a fund that has not yet cracked a hundred million in, in assets under management, it's a harder fundraising environment now versus before the war started. Yeah, I, I, I did think, you know, obviously not a rosy picture for funding right now, but rosier than I was expecting um, going into the conference. Yeah, I mean, and to your point, like maybe some of those funds are having a hard time, but then you have the corporate VC funds that still have a lot of money. In fact, one launched uh, just here, Angelini uh, Ventures, uh, which is a $300 million fund actively meeting with startups here. And um, so, yeah, I think the corporate VCs might be in a better position right now. Yeah, and tying back to an earlier point of discussion, I think one of the reasons that the, those pharma partnerships are so coveted with startups right now, and everyone wants to, to it, it it provides a layer of security, you know, to have that that relationship, and and eventually maybe to try to get acquired by that pharma company you've been partnering with, which happens somewhat regularly. Yep, yep, more stability for sure if they can show that they've had traction with a large company, which they know would have a lot of. Uh, hoops to jump through in order to sign that partnership, right? So should we end with a lightning round? Um, maybe just the most uh, most interesting thing you heard, best quote that you heard, best moment of Frontiers, however you want to take it. Yeah, I heard a great quote from Helene from Ethi Farm, and she said she heard it somewhere, so I'm just going to pass it along, um, which was, U.S. innovates, EU regulates. And I just thought it was kind of funny because maybe, uh, you know, the U.S. way of growth at all costs is not the best way. Um, and we need a little bit of pullback, uh, which they are now, which the EU is doing with the tech companies. Um, but I just thought that was a funny, like... Very pithy. Pithy comment. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think the takeaway has been... It's from mistakes that change happens. You cannot get anywhere without failing. Failure is a must. I would say, actually, the panel I just came from, um, Theo Adahome uh, from Wealthy, he said, you, uh, he said, first of all, patient engagement uh, trumps patient activation every time. And then he was explaining the difference between the two. And he said, patient activation is getting the patient to do what you want, patient engagement is supporting the patient in doing what they want. I know, that was great. I thought that was a really well well I, said. I've never heard it put that way before in all the time I've been covering this space, but but it really, when you think about things like medication adherence, you really see how that kind of perspective shift can be really valuable. And for me, um, I go back to Lena Chandra's opening when she described the story of um, the child and being, the, the parent taking the child around and having to go to seven different hospitals after being rejected from six because they just couldn't pay for healthcare. And it was uh, just a, a story that touched uh, everyone's hearts because I just still like to me, I can still hear the applause from the audience. Uh, I just after got she the chills story. again, just thinking about it, how horrifying that was. And it's an apt way to, to end this discussion because it's the way this conference started. And it's what really matters is making sure that doesn't happen. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. 
at the end of that talk, Tony, you 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 kind of issued a challenge to people uh, meeting at the halls of the conference, asking, you know, start your conversations by talking about why you're in healthcare, what this means to you, and I I really like that too, and um, and hopefully that really did inform people's experiences over the last two days. I hope so, and I hope we continue doing that in our future. We interact with each, with uh, new people across the industry uh, to keep that focus on humanity. Well, thank you guys all for joining me thank here you. at the end of the show. Um, thank you all for tuning in and listening. Um, and uh, yeah, safe travels home. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Ciao. Till 2023. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and to follow us on Twitter at at Pharma Forum. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.